Welcome to the INS Infusion Room, a podcast of the Infusion Nurses Society. The Infusion Nurses Society is recognized as the global authority in infusion therapy and is devoted to setting the standard for infusion care. I'm Dawn Berendt, your podcast host and the Clinical Education and Publications Manager for INS. Welcome to this edition of INS Infusion Room. My guest on today's program is Michelle DeVries, Senior Infection Control Officer at Methodist Hospitals. We are discussing two topics today, and the first topic is her INS webinar entitled Adding Microbial Picks, Making the Case, and Measuring Outcomes. Shelley shares some exceptional outcomes that were gained in her facility The second topic that we're going to be talking about is managing infection control practices in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic. I know that you are going to appreciate the information shared in this segment coming up right after the break. Looking for online education? INS has a number of exceptional educational offerings posted in the INS Learning Center on the INS website. Airing live on May 6th is a new webinar entitled Normalization of Deviance, Antithesis of Safety, presented by Maureen Berger. We also recommend INS webinar Adding Antimicrobial Picks, Making the Case and Measuring the Outcomes, presented by Michelle DeVries and posted on the INS Learning Center. Both webinars offer one contact hour and one CRNI recertification unit. So today I'm delighted to have with me at INS Infusion Room, uh, Shelly DeVry. Shelly, welcome so much to this podcast. Don, thank you so much. It's my absolute pleasure to be here and join you as we talk through some pretty timely and important things that are, are facing our nursing staff and all of <laughs> All healthcare, yes. <laughs> so Shelly, um, I want to give you the same opportunity I give all of my guests. I want you to tell us about yourself, the work that you do, and and a little bit more about who you are. Well, that's kind of a fun way to start. Um, So I am an infection preventionist uh, by job title. I'm the Senior Infection Control Officer at Methodist Hospitals in Gary, Indiana. I have been involved in infection prevention and hospital epidemiology for more than 25 years at this point. But my real passion is at the intersection of hospital epidemiology patient safety, and vascular access and infusion nursing. Um, To that end, I'm actually part of the National Board of Directors for the Association for Vascular Access, as well as co-president of my local network. I was a reviewer for the the last version of the INS standards, and I've actually written the infection prevention chapter for the next edition of the INS textbook, um, Infusion Nursing and Evidence-Based Approach. So 
this is sort of my happy place where all of those passions can come together as we can work collaboratively to address improving outcomes with our decisions on vascular access and infusion for our patients in every setting in healthcare. Absolutely. Thank you. So we should let our listeners know the recording date for this is April 17th. So some of the things that are discussed in this podcast will be reflected of this date and this this point in time. <laughs> <laughs> A good reminder, Dawn. Thank you. Okay, Shelley, let's get started. So Shelley, last week, um, you presented an INS webinar, Adding Antimicrobial Picks, Making the Case and Measuring the Outcomes. This is an exceptional webinar, and it's up on the INS Learning Center website, available for viewing now. I'm going to ask you to kind of give us a recap of what happened in your facility using antimicrobial picks. My absolute pleasure. And again, thank you so much for the invitation to do the webinar. It was so much fun and such an exciting time when so many of us are being pulled in very different directions with what's going on in the world around us to kind of have a little bit of time to go back and reflect on our everyday practice. Mm -hmm. And the, the webinar is really the conversation of my organization's implementation of an antimicrobial, anti-thrombogenic pick line. Um, we presented the data on 30 months of post-implementation findings. I work at a large community hospital in Northwest Indiana, and 30 months following the implementation of the antimicrobial device, we looked at 1,375 picks, 12,352 inpatient central line days, and we saw a 91%, 91.15 if you want to take credit for the full thing, but a 91% reduction in our pick clabsy rate from the time we implemented that. So that's a P equals 0.0002, highly statistically significant. Our pick clabsy rate dropped from our baseline, which was 1.83 per 1,000 central line days. The aggregate data after 30 months is 0 0.162. So it's an, an absolutely incredible journey and story mm. of our vascular access team working with infection prevention to address the guidelines and standards that all really steered us toward implementing an antimicrobial device because we were still seeing like half of our organization's CLABSIs were in pick line, but they weren't related to our team's insertions. They were taking place, you know, more than a week after the insertion. So as we went through all the guidelines and standards, it was a an opportunity to align with those guidelines. And our, our results have just been outstanding and persistent. So uh, a very, very exciting story. And if I can say one more thing, because this is the part that makes me, I don't know, tingle, for lack of a better <laughs> word. I don't know if it's okay to say that. I'm about the statistics and the numbers. I think, you know, my background is hospital molecular epidemiology. I'm not an inserter. I'm a data nerd with an absolute passion for infusion nursing and vascular access as it intersects with patient safety. So when we look at what those numbers mean, it's great to say, hey, we had a 91% reduction, but that's a number. The human behind that number, if we had continued our rate of infection as it was at our baseline, and we have those same number of pick days, if we extrapolated that out, we would have expected, and I hate that term, but we would have expected to see 23 pick clabsies 
we saw two. Exceptional. So that would mean, yeah, 21 avoided collapses. And if we use the mortality estimate of 20%, that's seven human lives that we potentially mm-hmm. saved. And that, I mean, that's, I think, what it's all about for all of us, no matter what, what role we fit in in this shared world. That's that's what it's all about. Absolutely. Sorry, I get excited. No, please do. So I know that your team um, worked so hard prior to this, doing all of the right things, following every bundle element. And yet there was still that little piece at the end that we just couldn't conquer. And, and I, I am Go ahead. Sorry. No, go ahead. I am glad you brought that up because I do think it's important to recognize that the best products in the world can only work if we put them in a setting that we're, we're supporting them for success. There's no magic bullet. Mm-hmm. This is part of a program where we're already doing maximum sterile barrier precautions. We have a very skilled team doing insertion and we, we train and we competencize, if that's a word, our staff on care and maintenance. So it's within a strong existing program. And it was that last piece that you mentioned that really carried us to where we needed to be. But it's absolutely part of a a comprehensive program of uh, infection prevention and vascular access. Very good. Well, the, the webinar was wonderful. Your statistics are wonderful. And you have done just a great job keeping record for us, you know, to learn this, to watch the data and 30 months worth of data is commendable. And so are your outcomes. Thank you. So let's kind of turn our conversation now towards something a little more current. And we're not going to surprise anybody by saying we're going to talk a little bit now about COVID-19 and the pandemic and the challenges that it's presented for all healthcare and certainly in the world of infusion as well. But I want to start out with having you tell us about an announcement that came from CMS on March 22 that affects CLAPSI. Sure. Yeah, this was um, kind of a, a, not kind of, a, a very big deal where CMS says they announced relief for clinicians, providers, hospitals, and facilities quality reporting programs in response to COVID-19. That's the headline on the announcement. Mm -hmm. Um, But how it affects us in CLABSI is for October 2019 to December 2019, so fourth quarter 2019, data submission for CLABSI is considered optional. If our organization submitted Q4 data, it will be included to calculate the value-based purchasing payments if appropriate. If it's not submitted for Q4 2019, uh, calculations will be made based on the first three quarters of 2019. Where we are right now, so calendar year 2020, CMS is not going to be counting data for the first half of the year, so January 1 through June 30th is what they've projected so far for performance or payment programs, and we do not have to submit data regarding CLABSI to CMS in this time period. But then the, the caveat again is if you have submitted data for first quarter, it will be used in scoring. So we don't have to report anything for the first half of 2020, but if you do report first quarter, they will use it in your numbers. 
What I want to say on that is because I know it's got it's got a lot of us very anxious, mm-hmm. you know, the feeling that suddenly it, it doesn't count. I will say these numbers count whether or not we're counting them, whether or not we are required to report them to a federal entity. They absolutely count for the humans and their families who have trusted us with their lives. Many of us have submitted our data to CDC long before value-based purchasing existed, long before this was a federal or state mandate. So the fact that in this relatively short period of time, CMS is saying, hey, we're going to give you, we're going to give you a break. You don't have to do this. We're not going to count these against you for the CMS's penalty program. That doesn't mean that we should not still be collecting data internally and using it for quality improvement. Um, it is a key component of what we do, and it may look a little bit differently. Mm-hmm. A lot of us aren't out able to do the bedside grounding and some of the, the mentoring and direct observations that we've done historically. But we can and must, in my opinion, find a way to continue to monitor these and probably more outcomes. Uh, you and I were chatting before we went live on this recording about some of the things we're seeing in infusion nursing and vascular access right now. To try to to try to save PPE and to try to spare our, our staff unnecessary exposures, we need to measure those. We need mm-hmm. to know how they're impacting our outcomes, independent of CMS's announcement that we don't have to report collapses to them. So that's that's my very strong belief. It 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 does not tell us not to continue doing what we're doing and not to understand and measure and react to negative outcomes that we might see, mm-hmm. but simply that it's not part of the federal reporting in this time period. Right. I'm really happy that you took us to that place because that was where I wanted to go. I wanted to talk <laughs> just a little bit further. You know, while the the intention was to relieve a strained healthcare system that is working just as hard as it can right now to take care of the pandemic, um, the message isn't that this isn't important, that, that collapses aren't important. The message is that, that we're putting some ease in your system. But when you talked about collecting data during this period of time, um, we're not going to understand the full impact of COVID on not only the COVID-19 patients, but the other patients in the facility and the impact on all of the other measures that we're looking at. So so I agree with you. I think it's really important to, to stay the course, um, whether or not you're, you're electing to report, but stay the course, you know. And we, we're talking now about providing the safest care, <laughs> given some of the concessions that we have to make. Yeah, and I can say in my own organization, uh, we, we have not, Straight from how we monitor cultures every single day and reviewing practices, in this case, more through chart review, through direct observation. Mm-hmm. And my team is still leading a parent cause analysis with the staff when we do have a bloodstream infection or another adverse um, outcome that we measure. We're just doing it as a remote meeting, as a Zoom meeting or as a webinar instead of gathering in the break room to have those conversations. Right, right. So, uh, and and yes, it's it still goes on, and it keeps it at the front of everyone's thinking and thought process, and kind of remains seamless. 
Um, we are all living in that virtual world to, to some extent, and uh, it certainly works for um, the root cause analysis as well. So let's talk about some of the changes that um, we're seeing in practice. I want to talk about some of the things that we're seeing, but I would also like to give you the opportunity to talk about infection prevention during COVID-19. Um, what recommendations do we have that we need to touch on today? You know, I think there's a lot of fear in our caregivers across every discipline right now. And understandably, because especially when this started, the guidance we were receiving from CDC was seemingly changing every day. Sometimes it felt like three times a day. Yes. We're at a much more stable place in those recommendations. I think the changes we've seen most recently have been on a much more minor scale. But just really directing people to continually use, for those of us in the U.S., um, the CDC as our starting point and as our source for our policies and recommendations. With the fear, I think we've seen some things creep into practice that just don't make sense. Um, we're talking about something that is airborne and contact spread or droplet and contact spread. And we know how to deal with this because these are the patients we see all day, every day, whether it's... Um, I don't, shouldn't start naming things, but varicella or flu in a MRSA patient, the combination of PPE that's being recommended is really not that different from what our clinicians should be wearing every day for more common pathogens. So there's some PPE contingency strategies, which has made people, I think, a little more anxious where they're wanting to use N95s, but N95s aren't available, so we're using masks. The key difference is of making sure that we have the gown and gloves on, that you have respiratory protection on, and that your eyes are always protected. Those are the basic measures. So some of the fear I've seen has led us to almost reverting to what we saw happen with Ebola. And we're hearing stories of people wearing, you know, numerous layers of gloves, four layers of gloves, mm. and then cleaning gloves between removals. Well, certainly that was part of our Ebola strategy. It's really not a part of the recommendation for how we deal with COVID. So I think going back, looking at some of that guidance that's out there, there's some, some fantastic handouts and, and videos that really talk through the appropriate PPE. But I fear when we go to these sometimes extreme extra layers, that we may actually be increasing our risk if we're not using the equipment in the way that it's intended to be used and, and certainly at a time when we're all trying to be good stewards of the equipment, using more than is indicated out of fear, in the long run may impact our ability to care for patients as in many areas of the country, at least in mine, our, our numbers continue to grow. Okay, very good. So I like that you brought up fear. That seems to be driving a lot of thought processes right now. And, you know, there's, there's fear of taking the virus home. So for clinicians who are on the front lines and they're, they're taking their own measures, they have their own thoughts about what do I need to do to protect my family when I leave the healthcare organization today? Can you talk a little bit more about that? Sure. And a lot of this, I, I'm, I want to just remind anyone who's listening to this, these guidances change <laughs> frequently. So if you're listening to this, 
and it's the day after we recorded it. Things may have changed, and I'm I'm sharing the best I can from what we're hearing from CDC. But I just I do want to be mindful that there continues to be nuances. Sure, sure. Where we are right now, we're seeing as much spread in our communities as we are within our organizations. So one of the things that came out earlier this week from CDC for our interim infection prevention guidelines for suspected COVID, this is concept of universal source control. So originally when we started this, you know, we wore PPE as indicated for caring for an individual patient. And then as organizations saw um, the need to conserve PPE, we began either contingency or crisis strategies where you would put a mask on and you would leave it on your face. You wouldn't remove it between every patient and you certainly wouldn't remove it and put it back on with the standard surgical masks. And we saw N95 for limited reuse. But then as more and more staff found themselves being exposed potentially to mm-hmm. COVID patients, um, we had recommendations for perhaps folks being home from work for 14 days, which then creates strain in many healthcare systems. So staff, asymptomatic staff, began working with a mask, which is part of what CDC permits. But now the latest recommendation is that we do universal source control, which means anyone entering the healthcare facility for any reason, clinical or non-clinical, and this includes our executives, which is a conversation I've had at my own organization. This is anyone in the hospital, including patients. And if you still have a couple of visitors for, for very uh, limited reasons, it applies to them too. So that's a mask when you enter a hospital for any reason. And that's really to help get at the idea of asymptomatic uh, transmission or pre-symptomatic transmission because we just don't know enough. And I think that's going to go a long way to help making our staff feel more comfortable and confident that they aren't inadvertently being exposed. Mm-hmm. And this is where the cloth masks, I think we're seeing more and more. So many of our communities have have rallied around our organizations and we've got folks sewing masks for us. Mm-hmm. Those are great for source control. They are not considered personal protective equipment. So if you are placing a line or assessing a patient where a mask is needed, according to CDC, and again, you need to know your institution's policy. So nothing I say should trump an individual's organizational policies. But CDC is saying that those cloth mask coverings are not considered PPE because we just don't know enough about about what layer of protection they'll have. So if masks are available, they should still be being used for care, a, a engineered, produced, I don't know the right terminology to use, but a, a traditional mask that we've always used for care. Um, cloth masks may be fine for our visitors and our patients, but this is a big deal for me to give us the confidence that, that those that we're working with or those that we're interacting with are um, not inadvertently or at least reducing, minimizing the risk of, of them spreading to us. Most of us are checking temperatures. Um, that's also one of the recommendations, uh, checking temperatures and screening for symptoms before anyone is coming into our healthcare facility. And again, that applies not just to our direct care providers, but anyone for any reason coming into our hospitals to help us do the best we can with the tools we have available to produce or reduce those potential exposures. Um, 
following the PPE guidance will go a long way. Um, I think the biggest change for people is making sure when you're providing care for these suspect patients that you're including eye protection. That's the the biggest change, Mm. I think, for how we normally provide care. Um, Certainly as a proceduralist, you probably have your eyes covered, but there's other times we would be in a room where that would not be our, our standard PPE. And as a reminder for those of us who wear spectacles, OSHA does not consider our prescription glasses as personal protective equipment. So you are going to want to be throwing goggles or a face shield over your glasses to protect your eyes from exposure. Okay. I'm sorry, I kind of went all over the place. You did. That, that is okay. So you have so much to share and it's no problem <laughs> at all. Um, let's, let's go back to the cloth masks. Um, sure. Is the recommendation that those who enter the facility that are non-healthcare providers. So let's let's say the executive team or someone else who is not really having bedside contact. Are cloth masks okay in those situations? So I will say I'm going to read from the CDC. And so if it sounds like I'm reading, it's because I am, because I don't <laughs> want to speak this. It's and, okay. Yeah. And um, under their guidance for the universal source control, they say cloth face coverings are not considered PPE because their their capability to protect healthcare workers is unknown. But for visitors and patients, the cloth face covering may be appropriate. Um, if a visitor or a patient arrives without a cloth face covering, a face mask may be used. One of our face masks, if supplies are available. So I would say very much they're encouraging that the cloth masks for source control, which is what we're talking about with the universal masking and why they're calling it universal source control, is an effort to contain that. And so when you look at um, the CDC's recommendations for cloth face coverings in areas of significant community-based transmission, this is why we have so many darn acronyms. That's a mouthful. (laughs) It is. but CDC is clear for those purposes that the cloth face coverings are not surgical masks or N95s. And we want to make sure that we're conserving those critical supplies for our healthcare workers and medical first responders. So if you take those two together, I would absolutely say both CDC guidances would be in support that our non-clinical staff, the cloth face covering at this time would not be an inappropriate choice. Okay. Very good. And now let's let's go back to the clinician who's leaving the healthcare facility, leaving the shift for the day, and going home. Are there measures that those individuals can take to uh, protect family and loved ones um, even further? Um, should they be uh, changing into a different set of clothes and shoes or? Um, what are the recommendations for healthcare workers leaving the organization? Sure. A lot of this is going to go to my opinion and my interpretation. Okay. So I want to be clear on that because there's not a black and white guidance that addresses that piece beyond our, our normal PPE. You know, you want to be mindful of your use of, of your gowns and gloves. And the reason we wear those is to minimize the contamination of our uniforms below. We know that even things like MRSA, if we don't wear a gown, the possibility of contaminating our uniform is very high. Mm-hmm. So if you're wearing the gown and gloves for your interaction, your contamination of your uniform below should be minimum. If you're in stores of doffing your PPE, and I encourage you to look at some of the videos on 
I know we were all trained and hopefully you've got some annual reviews, but how to really roll that gown off and remove your gowns to minimize contaminating yourself in the removal process. Um, I don't think we need heroic, but, but certainly performing hand hygiene when you come home and making sure you're performing hand hygiene throughout your day. Um, shoe covers are not part of the con- recommended PPE. So you leaving your, your shoes um, outside of your carpeted areas of your home wouldn't be an inappropriate measure. Do I think it's a major source of transmission? No, I really don't. But um, it would be something to consider for peace of mind. I don't think it would be inappropriate. Um, no special provisions really beyond the, the common things we do. So excellent hand hygiene, being mindful of the surfaces you've touched before performing hand hygiene and your regular laundry practices for your workplace. Okay, very good. So let's turn our conversation just slightly again, and let's get closer to home with infusion nursing and vascular access. Um, we had a question from the recent webinar that you um, gave last week, and a, a listener wrote in a question that says, how is your team taking precautions on the COVID-19 patients? So they're talking about a vascular access team. And this person said, we've heard about having dedicated inserters or placers um, and dedicated equipment for those patients, meaning that we're separating um, the equipment that's used within the facility and perhaps that's like the cart on wheels that we take in to do central lines, uh, maybe uh, separating the team, the individuals who's providing care for COVID-19 patients. So can you take a stab at that question for us? Sure. So um, within my own organization, we have a relatively small vascular access team. Um, So we do not have dedicated individuals caring only for our COVID patients and others caring for our non-COVID patients. Um, So so that's just, I think, really the structure within my own program. Right. we have cohorted patients in the organization as much as possible. I think many of us have, have, have done this to help uh, manage our supplies as well as our staff exposures. That being said, we do see COVID patients throughout the organization. When it comes to equipment, um, if dedicated equipment is available, CDC always supports for, for isolation patients dedicated medical equipment. But if we don't have that dedicated equipment, as we do for every other isolation patient in the hospital, any non-dedicated, non-disposable medical equipment used for any isolation patient needs to be cleaned and disinfected according to manufacturer's instructions and facility policies. So that's no different from how we would handle your supplies when you go in. Um, there's not extra levels or another degree of cleaning that's needed. But anything that's gone into the room, we want to minimize um, touch contamination. We shouldn't be accessing the drawers. You're looking at a pathogen that has both contact and droplet slash airborne potential for spread, depending on what else is going on in the room. So um, minimizing anyone reaching into those areas as you would for any other patient who's in those kinds of isolation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Very good. Did I answer? You answered that very well. Okay. So um, it takes us back to where we started, where you said, you know, we have isolation practices and we have 
decontamination practices that have been in effect for a very long time. And this is the time where we pull those out and are really, really good at them. <laughs> you know, do it. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And, and, and just, you know, from, again, I'll reference back to CDC, it's routine cleaning and disinfection procedures are what's recommended in healthcare settings, including where aerosol generating procedures are performed. Management of our laundry, our food service, our medical waste, it's our routine procedures. Mm-hmm. So I think that's, that's very reassuring to me right. with, with all the, the, the fear that people are experiencing. There's really no heroic, it's probably not my best choice of words, but in what is being recommended for how we handle things around our, our cleaning and our, our care of our supplies, other than doing what we've always been been asked to do and, and making sure we're conscientious, as always, with how we carry that out. Okay. And your last statement was a great segue to the next part of our discussion, and that what you just said, doing what we've always been asked to do. Now let's talk about the things that we're being asked to do that are different <laughs> than what we would normally do. So we know that uh, having the infusion pumps outside the room is something that that really has um, brought about a lot of questions, a lot of concern for practice, and a lot of discussion. And yet there have needed to be concessions made to preserve uh, PPE, certainly, to limit exposure. But yet, some of the things that people are needing to do right now as part of those concessions are concerning. And we've we've had uh, clinicians reach out and say, you know, I, I feel bad, I feel guilty. I don't even want to tell you what what's happening or what, what um, might be uh, part of our, our new practice for now. So let's talk about that a little bit. <laughs> okay, where where to start on that? Um, we are seeing innovation. Might be too <laughs> very also not quite my right word. We're innovative we're changing thought. Yes. How we practice. Yes. To try to accommodate our needs for patient care, while balancing our need to protect our staff and also protect our PPE supplies. And there have been minor changes, and then there have been some very significant changes, such as what you just mentioned, um, infusion pumps and even ventilators, I think, at times Mm -hmm. out in the hallway. Mm -hmm. I will go back to my never-ending mantra of data-to-data-data. If you're doing what you need to do, if we're making these crisis decisions, please come up with what's appropriate in your role to measure the impact in in real time as much as possible, but also through some consistent method of of collecting that data and understanding. Um, those, those of us following the infusion nursing standards of practice, the infusion therapy standards of practice, hopefully have a good baseline understanding of what your current infiltration and extravasation rates are, or at least the common... Um, numbers that you see, if we're seeing changes in those numbers or increases in occlusion or more serious outcomes related to, for instance, an extravasation event, we want to make sure that we do not stop being our patient advocate. So if it's not your eyes on the patient, 
perhaps that perhaps that time that you otherwise would have spent at the bedside could be spent by reviewing those outcomes, working with your information systems to understand what's going on when we make those choices. And I think that's how we can still be great advocates for patient safety is acknowledging that these may be necessary changes right now based on individual circumstances within your institution, but realizing that our need to provide safety to our patients as well as our staff is a careful balancing act. And that's a role we can all play in in monitoring those outcomes, reviewing the protocols that are coming perhaps from um, not from our infusion nursing, not from our vascular experts, but but coming from other disciplines, we can be a part of the solution by by vetting the outcomes when those decisions need to be made. I encourage you to to gather that data, keep that data, and hopefully pull it together and and share that data um, in both informal and formal methods once we get through this, so that we can understand the impact of those choices. Very good. So, Shelley, I'm going to give you uh, the opportunity to give us any last words. And then when we get done, we're both going to share our thoughts and feelings about our healthcare workers. All right. Well, I think I just want to start with a sincere thank you to those of you who are coming in every day and continuing to provide the incredible care that our patients deserve rely on, and even more so in these times of great concern. The need for vascular access as a gateway to all healthcare has become even more critically apparent with what what's needed for patients at this time. Continuing to be there, to review the medication orders, and to help make those recommendations for the safest possible vascular access in a time where that may look different from the way we've always done things. I thank you for keeping our patients at at the front of decisions you make every day and advocating for them with with every opportunity we have. And we're working in a collaborative manner, probably even more so than we ever have as we're bringing in additional disciplines to do a lot of the care that may have previously been performed by our experts. So, so supporting and guiding the bedside nurses who may be, may be doing more than ever in our role of infusion nursing. Um, I just, I thank you so much for what you do every single day and even more so as you too adapt and at times adopt things that, that may not always be completely comfortable. Thank you, Shelley. I agree with all of your statements. Thank you seems like such a small expression to convey our gratitude to our nation's healthcare workers. We are overwhelmed by your selfless work, your skilled hands, and your compassionate care. We appreciate you always. Job well done. Okay, Shelley, thank you so much for being my guest today. Um, you have given us a boatload of information, and for that, we are so appreciative. It's always a pleasure visiting with you. Thank you so much. It was, it was my absolute pleasure. Thank you. This concludes this episode of INS Infusion Room, a podcast of the Infusion Nurses Society. We welcome your comments. You can reach us at 
Infusion Room at ins1.org. That's Infusion Room at ins1.org. Thank you for listening.